Well, grace, peace, and mercy be unto you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. What does it mean exactly from Scripture to look at God moving us in a countercultural cadence? We spent the last four weeks looking at the many things that God would actually turn upside down about our life, our, our time, our energy, our finances, all of these kinds of things, the resources God has given to us. But I thought today what we would do is take a little bit of time to understand that God's plan of counter-cultural cadence means that has, he has a plan for us in our life to walk differently, to act different. It, it, to be in such a way that the rest of the world goes, well, that's not how I would have reacted. You know, when you have a, a challenge in your marriage, instead of like the rest of the world where you cut and run and you just say, ah, I'm just tired of dealing with it. No, you stay at the mercy seat of God and you say, we'll work this out. Or when you're at work, right? And your boss just puts pile after pile after pile. And the rest of the co-workers are going, ah, that's it. I mean, I'll do the bare minimum, but they're not getting the best out of me. I've given my years and years to this, but man, it's just not worth it. I don't get paid enough. No, your response is, God, I'm thankful to have a job. And I will absolutely do my dead level best. Because that's what you would have me do. And when your family members complain, right? Well, you're the favored one. Or you want to complain. You're the favored one, right? No, you say, God, I, I completely understand that there are challenges of parenting. That it will seem at times as if I favored another. And yet, the love is deep between the two. No, we're going to walk to a counter-cultural cadence. And that cadence comes from God. Isaiah 55, you've heard me quote 8, 9, 10, and 11 hundreds and hundreds of times. But I thought this morning what we would do is go through this section of Isaiah so that we have a firm understanding of God's way of approaching our life. In verse 1, for those of you that brought your Bibles, if you've got your smartphone, go ahead and pull that up. Uh, Samuel, let's go ahead and go back to the uh, reading there. That way uh, most people can read along on the screens. So in verse 1, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. The idea here in verse 1 that Isaiah is sharing is that God has in store for you blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Isn't that awesome? That what it means to be a believer is that you don't have anything to worry about, you have nothing to fear, that there's blessing upon blessing. If you're thirsty, come, I've got something for you. You hungry? I've got food. I'm going to provide. Verse 2, why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. Your soul will delight in the richest of fare. God says, hey, the, the money, the time, the energy that I give you, don't spend it on things that the way the world has. No, spend it on things that actually have eternal significance. And it is rich. There is nothing like being in the Word of God to have your soul 
filled. How many times have you popped open scripture going, ah, I don't know what I want to read today, as if it's almost an afterthought, right? Oh, stressed out. Oh, maybe I should open my Bible. And all of a sudden, you pop open a verse and you're like, oh, that's awesome. That's what we mean by your soul is filled with the richest affair. That's how God's word works. Now, imagine if you paid attention more often. Imagine if you went each and every day in a planned, ordered way that the Lord knew you would show up in the study every day. Imagine what he would reveal to you. It's the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. God says, just as I promised David to reign. That's what he has in store for you, is to reign. No, you're not going to be actually seated on a throne over a kingdom. But that you reign over the earth. That the earth is subject to you. That the animals, the things that are there, and God said, this is what I've set up for you. Now, I mean, how awesome is that? Be thinking back when you were a kid and you were brainstorming, man, what am I going to be? What am I going to do in life? I mean, very few of us as little kids went, well, I'm probably going to work for minimum wage and uh, not, uh, you know, advance very far. In life. No, what, what did you envision? Princess, king, warrior. Fire, you know, I mean, I mean, we, we, we picture big things. That's what God has ever in store. An everlasting covenant with you. We don't ever have to worry. Verse 4, see, I've made a witness, him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. God says, I have created you to be a witness to this world that is around you. Absolutely. People should see you going against the stream. People should know, wait a minute, they don't act like other people act in this situation. Wow, they still have the joy of the Lord. Wow, they still praise and thank God. Wow, they stick it out when all seems lost. That's countercultural, and the reason it's easy to do that is because God has set an everlasting covenant saying I've got you five surely you will summon nations you know not nations that you do not know will hasten to you because of the Lord your God I love this idea do you understand that most people believe that they will impact less than five people in their life It's just a sociology report, just picked it up the other day. People, I, I'll probably only influence maybe five people in my life. God goes, do you not know nations are going to see you? Maybe not you necessarily as an individual, but us in a collective, as far as the church, the body of Christ, nations will see how we act. People for eternity will be influenced by how you behave in the body of Christ. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Absolutely. We know to whom we can go at all times and in all places. Verse 7, let the wicked forsake his ways, the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord 
so that he can have mercy on him. That's the main message. Not just you turning back to the Lord, but that the wicked around, that you would influence with the gospel in such a way that, again, people would see countercultural. Wait a minute, why do you still love me? Why are you treating me kindly? I thought Christians were against what I do. You love me. That's countercultural. And then ultimately, God's saying, You want to understand why I'm calling you to a countercultural life? It's because I am. For my way, thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Well, I don't think like the world, God says. I don't act like the world wants me to act. Verse 10, as the rain and snow come down from heaven, do not return to it without watering the earth to make it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater. So is my word that comes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty. It will accomplish that for which I sent it. You know what makes it easy to go against the grain is when you've got a good drum beat to follow. It makes it really easy. All the other music, the cacophony of life and all the other sounds are swirling around, but you've got a nice, consistent beat to walk to, and I will guarantee that that is exactly what being a part of God's Word, being a part of God's plan, it may be faint at times, it may be louder at times, but I will guarantee you that under everything else that's happening, it is much easier to follow the cadence that God has for you. And what is the result? You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. How many of you, if I were to say, what are two things that you just so appreciate from God? Well, the joy of the Lord and the peace of God. The kind of peace that surpasses all understanding. The kind of joy that allows you not to smile, but to have your head up and your shoulders back and proclaim God's goodness. The mountains and the hills will burst into song before you. The trees of the field will clap their hands. So great is God's blessing of joy and peace that even creation cannot help but go, Awesome, God. That was great. How many of you saw the sunrise this morning? I always picture the mountains over here, right? Going, Woohoo! Awesome! Every morning, because it pops up, oh, you know, and all this, whoo! Can you imagine Pike's Peak, right? Every morning, God, here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Woo! Man, he's good. Where's that joy? Where's that appreciation in us? Each and every day. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the pine tree. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. What God says is, I'll recover Many of those plants just mentioned are, are, are kind of dry, arid things that grow without much life and, and vitality put into them. And they kind of spread. And he goes, don't worry about it. I'm going to give you pine trees. I'm going to give you the blessing, the good smell, that it's evergreen. 
to remind you that's my blessing for you? And who is this for? But the Lord's renown for an everlasting sign which will not be destroyed. God absolutely walks with us in a counter-cultural cadence. And he says, join me. A boy got in trouble with his brothers. He's a smart kid. Has some experiences a little different than his family. If there's a mistake early on in this boy's life, it's that he simply was joy-filled about receiving a, a dream one night and being able to explain it to his brothers. And his brothers were like, "What? we don't like this. His brothers abandoned him, sent him off. He was alone. And there's a response by many of us that may say, that's not fair. That's wrong. I, I, I thought God would be watching out for this little boy. I mean, his brothers just abandoned him. The story continues. The boy was sold into slavery. And we are upset. God, what are you doing? A man that buys him. Puts him in a place of honor and expects many great things. The young man who had been raised well, had great integrity, was a hard worker, did his job with excellence. The man continued to promote him. And yet one day when the man was away, the man's wife hit on the boy. Again, the young boy with integrity stating, I cannot do this. I cannot be here. You belong to my master. I cannot be here. And he flees. She shrieks. The authorities come in and go, well, that woman should not have been shrieking. Oh, you must have done something. See, your clothes are here. Evidence that you were wrong. And again, we go, God, what are you doing? This is not a, a, a blessed life that is growing in the nurture and knowledge of the Lord where they're just receiving blessing upon blessing. God, what are you doing? He's thrown in jail after being falsely accused, not committing a crime. All of a sudden, he's thrown in jail, and you're just like, man, how long is he going to have to sit there? king over the area in which they lived sent two of his workers into prison. They, too, partially of the story, falsely accused this young boy, understanding where they're coming from. Boy growing fear, an acknowledgement of, that God is in control. Until one day, the king himself has a dream, and the word goes out, hey, can anybody that has ever had a dream interpret it? And Joseph's going, 
That's right, the boy Joseph. And it begins to dawn on him as he looks back over life that I can see the hand of God moving in a counter-cultural way. I was abandoned by family, sold into slavery, falsely accused and imprisoned. I have been languishing here for years. For what? For what purpose? God, this is not how I would have written my story. God, this is not uh, seemingly very blessed. Alexander Solzhenitsyn writes in one of his books of his experience in the Gulag prisons in Russia for eight years. He says, I thank you, prison, for being in my life. an awakening, an epiphany that that clearly understands that God absolutely uses pain and suffering and challenge and difficulty because He is a God that is counter-cultural. C.S. Lewis says God yells at us in our pain. He screams blessing to us in the midst of our suffering. Countercultural, why? Because he's got to shake things up. And what's the rest of the story with the boy, Joseph, interpreting the king's dream, elevated to number two in the nation? There is a famine where his family was, his family returns, and you think, oh, yes, now God is going to reveal that through all of that pain, there is going to be justice for Joseph, and he is going to be able to smite his brothers and shame his father. Nope. Joseph extends a hand of blessing. Peace of mercy, and it becomes pure joy. And there we get the beginnings, the underpinnings of the nation of Israel in Egypt, under protection, receiving blessing through a foreign nation, even. And there we begin to understand that God has a plan that is counter cultural from the normal cadences of this life. You understand that by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, he absolutely was doing what no other story of a God had ever done before or has done since. No God dies for his creation. No God sends his own son to be the sacrifice forever. No God loves you, unless you do something for him. <laughs> Our God is so countercultural. He loves you just because he made you. And my prayer is that you would have strength and courage to go against the grain, to do it different than the other nations, the other churches, the other people in our community do life in Jesus Christ. 
And my prayer is that you would follow, follow the beat of Jesus Christ. As countercultural as it may be, no matter how faint it may be, in order to bring his name honor and glory. Amen. And now may this word of the Lord strengthen your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus until his return to take us home.